God uh, works and moves when his people gather to sing. I'm trusting by faith that he's doing that to some, if not all, this morning. It's my prayer, and I pray that it will continue to increase through the preaching of God's word as we open up the good book now. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, thank you that nothing can stop your sovereign plan that you wrote before time began, predestined in Christ, and now we're unfolding. Nothing can remove us from your love, height, depth, sin, evil, disaster. Nothing can separate us for those who are uh, sealed by your Holy Spirit, found in Jesus. And so by faith, we're looking to your word this morning, and I pray that you would accomplish your purposes. But I pray your word to you, O Lord, that you would accomplish your purposes, the purposes in which you have revealed in Scripture, which are to call a people to yourself, which are to take people out of spiritual darkness and bring them into light. Would you work, bless, care for, encourage? We love you and we trust you. Your will is good and we can say that confidently through Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, um, I'm sure that um, many of you who, uh, many of you would know who I'm talking about when I mention the name Taylor Swift. Uh, she's pretty cool nowadays. And uh, for those of you who do not know who Taylor Swift is, Taylor Swift is a uh, very popular musician whose global presence and popularity have now surpassed that of the Beatles. Times Magazine just this week named Taylor um, the person of the year. And a fun fact about Taylor and her music following is that uh, statistically speaking, it's actually harder to get a ticket to a Taylor Swift concert than it is to get accepted into Harvard University. So think about the condition of our world right now. That was a joke. Uh, Right now, Taylor is on tour. Uh, She's just halfway through her tour, and so far her tour is the highest-selling tour in history. It has just halfway through grossed over $1 billion in profit. By the end of the tour's uh, by the end of the tour, it's projected that she'll hit over $5 billion. She just continues to grow in popularity by the day. And uh, I'm not really a, a Swift type of guy. I think they call it Swifties. Um, uh, but if I were to be a Swiftie or like Taylor Swift and had a chance to attend one of her concerts, I'm sure it would be amazing. People say it's amazing. 150,000 people cram-packed into a stadium. Uh, lights off, cameras uh, flashing. Hands raised, together singing songs of familiar themes and passions, gathered together around one dearly loved person and whom people rejoice in and celebrate. Sounds kind of familiar if you think about what's happening. Many people who go to Taylor Swift concerts describe the experience as spiritual. And I think it is spiritual if you think about how we view our faith and music, God and music. I'm not saying that people who attend the concerts experience God or even have a gospel experience, even close to that of church, but I think people describe Taylor Swift's concerts as such because music sung in a corporate setting aloud has power to reach people. Music uh, provokes emotion, it draws passion, it creates community, it stirs unity, it provokes and um, initiates love. You might be familiar with the man named C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis 
once said this, music is a medium which could serve the po uh, to point the listener to the divine. Every natural thing which in and of itself is not sinful can become a servant of the spiritual, but none is automatically so. And when it's not, it becomes either trivial or a dangerous idol. Lewis, as he talked about his own life, actually went on to describe transcendent experiences while he himself was alone listening to music. Lewis believed that Christians had the capacity to allow musical beauty to turn them towards God. And so this morning, this is what I want to talk to us about. God's gift of song and the role of music specifically in the church. You might have noticed if you've been here for a number of Sundays that this is one of the biggest things that we do here on Sunday morning. We gather to sing songs. So I want to talk to you about the reason why we're doing what we're doing. But even deeper than that, I want to take you further to dive into um, uh, this topic and show you the greater spiritual reality and significance of what God does amongst his people when they gather together to, to sing songs of redemption. Uh, in 2009, I sang a song of redemption for my very first time. And it was in the context of a local church on a Sunday, ordinary Sunday morning, where I became a Christian. And so God, through the corporate singing of his saints together as they reflect upon and place their faith in the gospel, does things similar, a lot similar, and more to this. God does a supernatural work in the saints as we sing on Sunday morning. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, as we examine the text, and I've titled this sermon this morning, God's Gift of Song and the Role of Music in the Church. And uh, as we look at this text, I'd like to show you three main points. Number one, I want to show you how worship is a gospel response. Number two, I want to show you how worship is a corporate affair. And number three, I want to show you how worship is meant to strengthen and bless our souls. We're going to begin our time together by reading the text up front. Again, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The flood covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. My brothers and sisters, this indeed is God's word. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you how worship is a gospel response. As we uh, begin to dive into this song here, if you haven't already, through the reading of this uh, chapter, been reminded of the context, I just want to take a second to uh, give you a quick refresher on where we have been as a church in our study of Exodus. Chapter one, the the book began, and we saw a picture of blessing. God's people, Israel, were in Egypt. God, as they were in Egypt before, before Pharaoh came to reign, started to bless them and increase them greatly in number. But then the antagonist came, Pharaoh, and he rose up to power. Pharaoh, in his power, started to suppress the people of Israel. And so as a revealer of God's character and a revealer of his love for his people, what God did was end up choosing this one man named Moses, a prophet, to stand on his people's behalf and his behalf and be a mouthpiece to speak to this world leader and nation what was the will of God for his people and their future. And so Moses obeyed and went in. He talked to Pharaoh and he said, hey, listen, my God has said, let Israel go. Let my people go. And if you remember the story, what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh rebelled. Pharaoh hardened his heart and turned his heart away from God's will toward his own glory and ways and held down the people and made them suffer even more. He remained stubborn through the plagues. But God, as an avenger of his people, a fighter for his people, what he did was send all these different plagues time after time to fight for his people and show them um, his power, his jealousy, and his love. He displayed miracle signs and wonders in the skies and brought them down on earth. And then finally, as Pharaoh reached the tenth plague, that's the plague, the plague of death, where Pharaoh hit his knees in humility and finally ended up letting the people go. He said, okay, you can go, um, the Israelites left. They were given freedom to journey into the wilderness. But, but, but last week, if you remember, that, that wasn't the end of the story. What actually happened was after the people left Egypt, they were journeying out into the wilderness, and Pharaoh got a change of heart. 
He thought to himself, well, that was a stupid decision. They made a lot of money for me. I'm going to go after them and bring them back to my place. And so he pursued Israel through the mountains. He pursued them hotly and greatly and pressed in upon them. While Israel's backs were toward the Red Sea, they had nowhere to go. And when Israel heard them coming, they lifted up their eyes and saw the great army. And do you remember what they did? They were terrified and shouted greatly, thinking that God would not and could not save them. They doubted God after all those miracles. And what did God do for them in their doubt as they were in this impossible situation, unable to get out? He, um, he blew a wind from his nostrils, parted the Red Sea, and there they walked through the ocean on dry ground. So they walked through the ocean on the dry ground, their, their, their toes sinking into the sand. They're coming out, and God, as a fighter for his people, then saw Pharaoh and his hard heart and rebellious army as they sought to oppress and bring his people back into slavery. And what did he do? He crashed the waters over Pharaoh and his army, bringing an end to them. Dead bodies floated up on the shore after it was all over. Israel had been protected. Israel had been shown grace and mercy. Supernaturally, God had worked on his people's behalf. Their greatest enemy and life's oppressor that was seeking to kill them and strip them of life and make them work laborious, laboriously was now dead. That's Exodus chapters 1 through 14. And so that context there, that story there, is what leads us to Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Israel has now been freed and given a sure salvation from God. If you have an ESV um, translation of the Bible, you might notice how this section here um, by the edit editors is titled The Song of Moses. Moses, in verse 1, in light of everything that has just happened, what does he do? He sings. He sings. For an entire chapter, him with Miriam and the people of God consider God and his great works of salvation and they, they sing. Moses, the author of the book of Exodus, he's narrating and he pauses the book to say, let me stop the, the story for a second to give glory to God. Let me sing. And, and if you look at verse 1, um, he says, I will sing to the Lord. But in Hebrew, this verse here can be translated as, I must sing to the Lord, or let me sing to the Lord. In other words, after seeing and experiencing personally God's great work of salvation, he cannot keep his mouth shut. He has to. He has to sing. Everything inside of him is bubbling up with praise because of this great salvation that the Lord has provided for him. It is a great victory of freedom. He needs to praise God. It's right for him to praise God. And you'll see in this song how God, God himself is the object and central focus of this song. Here's some statistics about this chapter. If you take time to read it and interrogate it, this is what you'll find. Um, the, the word Lord is actually repeated 10 different times. Um, the personal pronouns referring to God as he or him are repeated seven different times. The words you or your, which also are addresses or words used to address God, are used 23 different times. And so 
in total through this one chapter, we have God spoken of and referenced 40 separate times. In other words, what I want for you to realize about this song of praise and worship is that it is about God. And it is not vague. It is not imprecise. Moses is speaking of God specifically, precisely. In verse 1, if you look, he says that he's glorious. In verse 2, he he says that he is strong and he, God himself, is salvation. Verse 3, he's a man of war. Verse 6, he's powerful. Verse 7, he's great. Verse 10, he's over creation. Verse 11, he's majestic and holy. Verse 12, he is awesome in wonder. Verse 13, he's full of steadfast love and redemption. And then lastly, in verse 18, if you look, that he, God Almighty, is eternal and reigns forever. Moses has learned all of these things through his relationship with God and also as he stood back to watch on display his great signs and miracles which have produced for him and the people salvation. This story takes place in a pluralistic society, which means that during this time, it was common for surrounding nations and the people as they came from Egypt to worship an array of gods. And so Moses knows this. And as these Israelites just left Egypt, he is really intentional to speak of God, not vaguely or generally, but if you look there, the word that he uses is Lord. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. And if you remember, this is the very name that God gave to himself and announced to Moses and his people in Exodus chapter 3. This is the text, verse 13. Moses said, before he went to Egypt, God, if I go to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? And, and then God said to Moses, say to the people, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This song is not a song about a vague or general God. This is a song about the creator of the heavens and earth and the savior of God's chosen people through the line of Abraham. And so the song here is sung to God for who he specifically is and what great works he has specifically displayed in this great salvation. And do you want to know the crazy thing about this song? We're here in the Old Testament. As we journey on into the New Testament, guess who's singing this song in the New Testament? Well, it's John in the island of Patmos. As he's caught up in a vision, seeing Christ in the heavens, and there are myriads and myriads of angels gathered around his throne. This is the song that they're singing in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will, will not fear the Lord? O Lord, who will not glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, in this story, my friends, we see the song of Moses further unveiled the New Testament as the song of the Lamb that the church sings. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh. And this is the song that the angels sing to him in glory. And so it is right for us to sing praises to God for this great sea-crossing miracle. 
But it is even more right for us as the church, the New Testament church, to praise and worship the Lord concerning who he is and what he's done through the person and work of the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To whom do we sing, church? We sing to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Why do we sing, church? Because he has saved us from our sin and death. Singing is the appropriate response to God's great redemptive work. They were singing at creation, dancing in poetry in the garden, singing through militant battle through the Old Testament, singing and worshiping around the temple, singing throughout the Psalms. Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, and even the angels at Christ's birth sang. Psalm chapter 98, verse 1. Here it is. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The Lord has done marvelous things. Do you remember in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus healed that leprous man, what he said to him? He said, hey, don't tell anyone. I just healed you. Don't tell anyone. What did the leprous man do? <laughs> he, <laughs> he got up and could not keep his mouth shut. Why? Because Jesus had just touched him and changed his entire life. Remember, remember Peter and James, the, the, the lame man sitting outside the gates of the temple, doors of the temple, what happened after Peter and James healed him in the name of Christ, what that lame man did? He got up, started dancing and frolicking, making his way into the temple, getting ready to worship. This is what happens when the power of the Lord Jesus Christ encounters and touches people. It makes them sing. And so let me just remind you of what God has done for you. He has indeed forgiven all of your sin he has taken away the weight of the curse and the consequence of death. If you have been filled, and this is only if you have been filled, but if you have been filled, then you would know if you have been filled by the Holy Spirit because this would be bubbling up inside of you. If you have been filled by the Holy Spirit, you have there in you jubilant songs of praise. He, he took you from darkness and passed you in to light. You once were dead in sin, but by and through the power of God, you had been made alive together with Christ. Once, before you believed, you were not a recipient of mercy. But then, by and through God's gracious initiative in pursuit of you and giving of his free grace, you had received mercy and came to life. How could you not, how could you not sing? How could we come here and kind of just sing? How could we come here and remain quiet? How could we consider the context of Sunday morning worship and think, ah, I'm going to find something better to do? I don't think I want to go to that. Remember what David said in the context of worship as he was invited to the house of the Lord? I was glad to me. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's what David said about church. I, um... I uh, hate this, this, this uh, common uh, joke that's made in our denomination. I despise it. And uh, our denomination is uh, known and uh, made, may, uh, some people uh, make lightly this, this joke that we are the frozen chosen. Um, 
that joke actually makes lightly a stiff, lifeless worship and missionless, missionless life. I don't know about you, I never want to be categorized by that. I never want to be categorized by frozen chosen. In heaven, the chosen will not be frozen. <laughs> it's funny, I'm, I'm really serious. John is on his face on the island of Patmos. Angels are gathered around the throne. They're singing holy, holy, holy. Our attendance and desire of corporate and personal worship to Christ here at this church and outside, it is a reflection if we indeed actually get the gospel. Do you get that? If we don't want to come here or, or, or try to come up with an excuse or really don't sing, I don't know, I'm not saying that this is a certain fact, but I'm saying this might be a possibility. You may not indeed be filled with the Spirit of God. This gospel changes everything. It, it makes dead men come to life. Dead women come to life. It makes children rejoice and sing for the hope of heaven. This, this, this thing that we call Christianity is life-changing, man. And, and here's how you know it. If you know it. Praise to the Lord. The Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is my health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Like, uh, I wonder what it's going to sound like in glory. Kevin DeYoung said, saved people love to sing. Shout to the Lord for joy, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. He made us. We're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. So we sing about the Red Sea crossing. We sing about the holy attributes of God. And ultimately, we sing about the cross of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That is our final resurrection and hope to come. Would you, saint, please, before you get here on a Sunday morning, stop to consider what is actually spiritually happening in this place before you step into the presence of the king. What if you, every time you came to this place, knew for certain and embraced with faith that he's here? I guarantee you our worship would look way more similar to that which is taking place in heaven. Who's going to sing with me? I'll tell you who. The one whose life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worship the gospel response. Amen. That was point number one. I'd like to show you point number two. How worship is also a corporate affair. Uh, when I first came to this church in 2019, it was a, a, an absolute honor to join a church family. And uh, one of the things that made uh, my joining of this family so beautiful, actually, it was the thing that led me to keeping the job, was the church's story. It, uh, it wasn't an easy story, um, but it was a good story because God is faithful. And I tell you, the people are the ones who, in part, made this story so beautiful. Uh, let me just say that um, when I first got here, the people who were here... Um, 
they were awesome, but I also just say they are the same people who are still here. And they are the, the backbone to this church. They're the biggest servers, they're the biggest supporters, the biggest givers, and the biggest, most faithful volunteers that we have. They are what holds this place together. And um, they have taught me uh, what it means to apply the gospel and how to treat and view and endure with the local church. Be committed to her through highs and lows. And I think that is what actually formed their bond of unity, that they went together by faith through highs and lows together and held on that there would become a greater day. And so that's, that's actually what happens when God's people live in relationship with one another by faith and hope for what is to come. When they when they're in it and when they come out of it, they actually come out stronger and, cl and closer together with a more gospel-centered unit and bond. Uh, this is actually what is true of uh, Israel here in this text and the thing that I want for us to notice. If you look in this text, it's not just Moses who is singing, but there with him at the end of the chapter, there is Miriam and all the women and the rest of the congregation of Israel, a.k.a. this song here, is intended for the entire family of God, men, women, and children. And I want for us to see about this song is that this is not just a song that is addressed to God. Um, but here, the, uh, these people are actually singing songs to one another. Uh, one person sings aloud. The other person hears it next to them. It's an entire congregation, about 600,000 together. Um, it's actually one of the things I love about worship. It was happened even this morning in one of the songs. It's when the, 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 the band cuts out for just one second. The instruments stop, and then they let the people sing, and you can hear those voices. Why is that moment so beautiful? Uh, well, because... God's people get to hear God's people united, sing together by faith in something they cannot see but are living their life for. Colossians chapter 3 says this, let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly as you teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and songs. In other words, with this one another aspect, we gain a proper theology of worship, and that proper theology is found in the fact that worship is not just a vertical but horizontal practice as well. The scriptures describe the members of Christ's church as members of one another. So could you imagine what God's people during the song after this exit event were, were thinking, what was happening in their heads and hearts as they thought about and reflected upon, sung the story about all that had taken place, the emotions they carried together, that weight of faith they carried together as they faced near-death experiences, the joy and laughter they had together as they left Egypt plundering the Egyptians with all their fine gold and jewelry, the awe and wonder as they saw the ocean split and sunk their feet into the sand passing through on dry ground. They sang it. The chariots of Pharaoh were cast into the sea. Who among the gods is like our Lord? Like they're proclaiming, we actually walked through the ocean. Our greatest enemy is actually dead. And we knew what it meant for him to rule us. But now we know what it means for him to not be powerful, lifeless, and be dead. 
You see, worship is a corporate thing because salvation is a corporate thing, which means God doesn't just save individuals and leave them to him, themselves as the American church or the American culture tempts us to interpret our faith as. But when God saves a person, he saves them into a people for them to experience covenant community. It is covenant community which makes corporate worship so beautiful. Thus, I emphasize our relationship and story with one another. So, so, so we see in the scriptures God's determination to bless us through this. And so the Bible doesn't say in the New Testament that we should go to church, but rather the Bible says in the New Testament that we must go to church. He, Hebrews chapter 10, that's the command. Do not forsake the assembly. Ephesians chapter 4, hear this unity. For there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to your one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you. And so this thing that we're doing is not God in me, it is God in us. Um, last Sunday after church, uh, my neighbors who also attend here, uh, my neighbor, he came over to help me uh, lay an epoxy down on my, on my garage floor. I've been working on it for a long time now. He's more handy than I, so that was a blessing. We're laying down this epoxy floor. His wife is down in the cul-de-sac with her children, and my wife is also down in the cul-de-sac with her children. And um, as we're working together, overlooking the cul-de-sac and the, the abundance of joy that was happening through the mingling of our family, so up came this uh, car that was packed with another church family, uh, husband, wife, baby, and even their dog, and accompanied by that was a fresh-baked loaf of banana bread. And so they came, they rolled down the windows, and they just sat with us talking and handed us the loaf. And it was just like the sweetest time. We didn't plan it. We just ended up hanging out together, uh, knowing each other. And then uh, after they dropped off the loaf I, loaf, I went back up my hill. And as I was walking up, I thought to myself, man, my heart is just so full. This is what the church looks like to be in community. James, are you asking me to do that? Yes, I am. That sounds intimidating. I'm an introvert. I understand. I could sympathize with that weakness. So am I. You might be more than me, but I just want to let you know that God is committed to sanctifying your introvertness as well as your extrovertness. Jesus was neither an introvert nor was he an extrovert. He was the perfect. And in his perfection, what did he do and show us about his life, ministry, and work? A commitment to relationships. Not a hiding from people but a commitment to people in relationships to give grace and to edify their souls and bless them with himself. So it must be for the church in the covenant community that we do not just gather here on Sunday morning, but that we would intimately know and partake in the gospel together. This is what makes covenant worship beautiful. I want to describe to you just two different types of church goers. You ready? It's really important that we get this here. There's two different types of people who go to church. The number one are church consumers, and number two are those who attend church on mission. Uh, church consumers are people who are often critical, who uh, put their preferences first, who sit back and wait to be served and pursued and only participate in those things if it's pleasing and not boring to them. Church consumerism often result, results in discontent and church hopping. But on the other side, uh, there is missional church goers who are motivated by the gospel in such a way 
that they search the scriptures for themselves so they can be refined and grown and strengthened and challenged in their faith and then use all that sanctification from God's word to serve the church. They give, they love, they practice hospitality, they take initiative, they um, provide encouragement, they support all for the sake of the bride of Christ to be strengthened and grown and for Christ himself to be glorified. Um, that's the great difference between the American church consumer and the gospel member. Do, do, you, do you notice how I made a difference there? There are attenders and there's members. Bible advocates for church membership. Um, our church is changing. And um, a lot of our older members are transitioning. Um, all for really good reasons. They're getting ready to move and retire or be with grandchildren. I'm just saying we desperately need godly men, women, and children to come and be the next generation of a backbone to this church. I'm not, I'm not asking for help helplessly. I'm just, I'm just laying it out there, what needs to be done. This is the work that needs to be done. People who will live their life for the church and not just come and go as they please. Like this takes work to do. This is a lot of work. And so if like you're burnt out or, or hurt by church, just come and be served. That's our goal. But if you're moving out of that and you've been here for a while, come on. Will you help? Will you volunteer? Would you give your time, energy, money, resources, gifts, treasures, talents. This is not for the church. This is for the glory of Christ to the kingdom of God. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not like, I don't really ever ask you for your money. It's not like my style. I come from that. And so I tend to like just shy away, but let me just put it into gospel perspective. Giving is an act of worship and it supports a local church and sending people on mission and establishing a gospel presence here in Lilburn, and so we got 40 people signed up with a waiting list for membership class. Do you know that if only, tw only tw half, if 20 people from the membership class started to give, that our church would crutch its yearly budget, I can make more hires, equip and train more people, more people could be cared for practically, and more missionaries can be sent locally and globally. Like, this is not for me to get rich. I hope that you get this gospel. There is no prosperity gospel in this gospel that we believe. But there are two different types of people in the kingdom. There are goers and there are senders. Are you a sender? Do you handle your money with faithfulness and say, this is not mine, this is God's. I will support the gospel work. Um, Non-Christians are becoming a Christians right now in our church. New Christians are being discipled. The marginalized are being cared for. So much gospel work is happening. I'm asking you, even as you consider tonight and come to the Christmas uh, uh, party, what if you came to it with a missional mind and say, wow, who is sitting by themselves? How can I set up or tear down? How can I vacuum? How can I love? How can I welcome? How can I look for someone's, someone who's new? and let them know this gospel that I believe in, just through my works of service, personality, and relational pursuit. It's, it's, it's a, 
We have a gospel opportunity tonight. I invite you to come. I'd like to finish up our time and show you lastly how worship is a, a strengthener and blessing to our souls. As we consider this text here, we've done two things. We've looked backwards. Israel has indeed. They looked backwards to consider God's salvation to them through Egypt. And they were looking in their present, their present calling and purpose as God's people. But in this text in verses uh, 14 through 18, they're also looking uh, forward with hope to their glorious future. Um, God, just for them, defeated the world's greatest power. Now they're moving towards Canaan, the promised land. And if you read verses 14 through 18, as they consider the surrounding nations, Edom, Moab, and the others, they know for certain through God's power that nothing is going to stop them from inheriting God's promise because he who called them has been faithful, thus he will be faithful. He has done the impossible work, so all of everything else is light work. They will inhabit the land, they're thinking to themselves, and reign with God because the Lord is their salvation. My brothers and sisters, I'm saying this is the gospel parallel to us as the church as we consider Jesus Christ. He has been faithful. We're in Advent. We look backwards. He is faithful to us right now. We have his grace, word, sacrament, and church. And he will be faithful to us because Christ has died, Christ has rose, and what? Christ is coming again. So we do not live without purpose, but we live with hope. This is what happens when we together aloud come to sing the gospel on Sunday morning. Our souls are strengthened and blessed, not just to get through the present, but to consider the hope of glory in the future. Christ will return for the church. The, the work is not in vain. Uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe in me as well. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to a place to prepare for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and welcome you into my presence so that you may be where I am. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ your song? The song of redemption, as Kevin DeYoung said, is a uh, song of melody and music. We're going to enter into glory singing. It is right for us to start now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we did nothing for this, yet you have given us the full weight of your glory and the gift of Christ. You gave us your son and all of heaven. It was a free act of grace. You were faithful to Israel even in their sins, so you are to us through Christ. We have a sure and certain salvation Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ is coming for us again. Oh God, empower us to live for your local church and global mission. I pray in your name, amen.